Welcome to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. My name is Elise Glink, and I'm a best-selling author, financial expert, and CEO of Best Money Moves, a financial wellness technology company. Equifax is a leading credit reporting agency, and at the start of the pandemic, the company launched an extensive COVID and credit financial resource center for consumers. You can find it at Equifax.com. The Equifax Credit Talks podcast is part of the effort to help expand your access to some of the leading financial experts in the country, as well as some of Equifax's own subject matter experts. We discuss real-world financial solutions and share resources for people like you who want to protect your credit and manage your finances during this pandemic. What we're going through right now is overwhelming. No two ways about it, but we're getting through it, slowly, but together. In this episode, we're going to talk with my good friend and award-winning financial journalist and owner of Money Coach University, Lynette Calfani-Cox, about better ways to manage your money during the pandemic. Lynette used to be a journalist for the Wall Street Journal and works with many large financial services organizations on ways to help people get smarter about their money. But first, let's turn to Zoe Cole, who works in analytics for Equifax Employee Benefit Services, for some context around consumer finances during the pandemic. Hey, Zoe, welcome to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Hi, Elise. Thanks for having me. So there's a general consensus around the idea that about 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And for them, the pandemic has been devastating economically. But not everyone has been hit equally. And it looks like employees in different industries have felt different levels of economic pain. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And if we look at the delinquency rate on credit cards across industry, a lot of that is kind of showing uh, the data that you're speaking to. So for instance, if we look at industries such as higher ed and financial, they actually have lower delinquency rates on their credit cards, meaning uh, people are actually paying them on time. However, if we look at other industries such as retail and food industries, for those, you tend to have uh, lower paid workers. You tend to also have workers who are potentially hourly as opposed to salary. And inside of those industries, we're actually seeing higher delinquency rates, uh, even somewhere in the order of 14 to 15 percent delinquency rates on their credit cards. So there's definitely a disparity depending on what specific industry we're looking at. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that this perception is that, well, only the lowest wage workers are hurting and everybody else is doing just fine. But is that true? Is financial stress limited to lower wage workers? Not really. Although lower wage workers may be getting hit more heavily, uh, we're also seeing even those inside of the what we consider uh, middle income, say from 50 to $75,000 a year in terms of their annual income, they're still looking at about a 20% rate of delinquency. So that would mean that they're under some financial stress at least. Yes, absolutely. Because about one-fifth of that population is going to have either no or very limited or expensive access to credit. So Zoe, with about 46 million Americans having filed for first-time unemployment claims so far, plus self-employed people who have filed for the PUA, it seems like roughly one in three Americans have lost income during this pandemic. How are employers coping? So just like the employees, the employers are being very reactionary to what's going on. We haven't seen this before. And so all in all, we're really seeing about five different steps that employers are taking. Uh, the first is really focusing in on the employee safety and working from home. There's been a lot of changes in dynamics of working from home versus working in the office. 
but then as we start moving the employees from the office space, we have to make sure that uh, we're keeping up with a lot of the communications, building that trust, making sure they understand that we as the employers are actually with them. Obviously, there's still the business stresses around keeping the business efficient. So once we've gotten our cadence around how people are going to be working from home, making sure that we're doing it in as efficient model as possible. But then we also have a lot of the outside pressures, uh, specifically legislative changes that need to be reacted to and understanding those as they're coming out and changing and what ways they actually affect the employers as well as their employees. And then because a lot of states have started uh, reopening the economies, we're starting to see a slight shift of employers starting to welcome the employees back into the office in various ways, whether it be splitting the employees into various teams and having certain subsets of employees come in, or uh, potentially even delaying it a little bit further until that particular office area or region actually feels comfortable with allowing the employees to come back in. You know, it's sort of funny is I know that people are going back to their offices because there was a little bit more traffic this week in downtown Chicago when I was commuting down to do some work. And I thought, oh no, it's coming back. I've kind of enjoyed not having the traffic part of it. Yeah, I've actually noted the same thing here in Charleston, South Carolina, um, but uh, it's actually somewhat also a little heartening to actually see that things are getting a little bit back to normal. All right. So there's new data out that more than 100 million Americans have received some sort of forbearance or accommodation, including more than 75 million student loan borrowers. But it's also people who have auto loans and credit cards and personal loans. Delinquencies, though, seem to be in check, at least so far. Are the loan accommodations borrowers getting helping there? They are. Uh, what we're seeing is that our delinquency rates in comparison to last year around this time are actually about the same. We'll really start seeing things change potentially over the course of the next couple of months as some of these things go away. So whether we're talking about the unemployment stimulus checks that are coming out, the mortgage and student loan forbearances that we were just uh, mentioning, there's also a lot of, of community support. But once again, there's only so long that so much of this is really going to be able to hold up and prop up the economy and people's ability to actually repay any of the loans they have. Plus, employees are also facing additional challenges. Uh, credit card companies are actually cutting back on some of the credit that is allowed out there. For instance, uh, there have been some people who have uh, mentioned that they've had credit cards that have called them because they really haven't been utilizing the credit card. And so those companies want to protect themselves. They want to uh, make sure that they don't have a lot of risk outstanding. So one way to cut back on that is to cut back on the overall limits. So they're either cutting down on the limits of credit cards that are not widely used or just absolutely closing them. Uh, we also see the same thing with HELOCs being put on hold, as well as higher requirements for someone to even take out a HELOC. It used to be that, you know, you can come in with a 700. Now, for instance, it's like a 720 in order to actually really get inside the line for getting a HELOC. Used to be 700 credit score and now it's a 720? Correct. It, it is interesting to watch that happen. And the amounts that are being granted are for a smaller percentage of the home's value than they were 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Zoe, thanks so much for the time today. No problem at all. Thank you, Elise. 
So I'd like to welcome Lynette Calfani-Cox to the Credit Talks podcast right now. She is a former award-winning Wall Street Journal reporter, best-selling book author, and she is also an entrepreneur. She owns AskTheMoneyCoach.com and Money Coach University. Lynette, so nice to have you here. Thank you for the invitation. Great to be with you. So obviously this recession, it feels very, very deep. Whether it's going to be long, who knows? But where do you see people right now? Where are their finances and how are they doing financially? I think for a lot of America, we are still at a crisis point. Um, If you look at the fact that so many people still lack savings um, at an adequate level to be able to withstand, say, even a four or $500 emergency. If you look at the fact that we have tens of millions of Americans um, still out of work or having had their pay reduced or their hours cut. And so we still are at this tension point where people are feeling the economic pain um, of this time. However, I do think that it may be slightly better than certainly what was magnified in a huge way in say uh, late March and in early April, where we were seeing these you know, enormous stock market sell-offs, but the, the panic and the angst that was um, very present then, I think, has diminished somewhat. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about the stock market because it does seem completely divorced from the reality of something over 20 million continuing claims for unemployment, uh, roughly a little over three times the height at the Great Recession 10, 12 years ago, right in 2009. And yet, We've got a stock market that's basically at at its all-time high again. Yeah, and honestly, I think at least that part of that is a function of the inequality in our society at so many levels. You know, depending on whose statistics you believe, they say really only about, um, you know, 25% of all Americans actually invest in equities and invest in the stock market. And, you know, you could look at it, are we talking about individual stocks, mutual funds, participation through your 401k, et cetera? The numbers may, you know, be greater. However, at the core, I think part of the reason there's this big disconnect is that overall, those who have the wherewithal and the capacity um, and the access in terms of investing in stocks are not the masses and it's not the majority of Americans. And so, the, the average kind of working class person does not see his or her fortunes tied to what's happening on Wall Street. And it would be better for all of us if more people certainly had access to those markets and were able to have the knowledge to invest and, and understand that over time that will help uh, lift all boats. And it's you're right, it's not happening for most of America. What is the advice that you're giving people right now in order to steady themselves. I mean, there's with so much loss of income, it almost feels as though people are really struggling sometimes to get just basic bills met. And we're also seeing new reports that as many as 17% of all Americans are struggling with food insecurity at this point in time. It's a major problem. And one of the things that I'm telling people is essentially to focus on prioritizing their bills and to pay whatever they can pay. Of course, we want people to be financially responsible, but at the same time, we want to recognize the very glaring um, reality that some people have, in fact, lost their jobs. Some people have suffered uh, recently with food insecurity. And so if you look at things like food banks, as you mentioned, and food pantries, 
And we're seeing a lot of folks who previously would not have ever considered or ever needed to go to a food bank. And so one thing I'm telling people to do is A, recognize all of the benefits, the resources, and the available points of aid that are um, out there. It may be a community-based center, it may be a faith-based organization, it may be a food bank or a food pantry. Organizations like feedingamerica.org are good to know. If you have um, need for food or nutrition support, they'll point you in the right direction nationwide. But then because Congress did pass the $2.2 trillion CARES Act, A lot of folks need to know that the SNAP program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, more commonly known as food stamps, was in fact expanded. And so, you know, the average person listening to us right now probably um, would not have had need for government assistance of that kind pre-COVID-19 and pre-recession. However, now they may. And it's really not like, oh, this is just for the poor people. No, it's really based on how much cash do you have in the bank? So your your assets and income at this point in time are what determine whether or not you'd be um, eligible to qualify for that kind of assistance. I tell people there's no shame in getting help right now if you need it, because a lot of people need help um, at a lot of different levels. It looks like a lot of these government programs, including the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, and things like expanding SNAP have really helped. But things like the 600 extra dollars people are getting for the unemployment is going to end in July, at the end of July. The rebuilding process is going to be slower than I think that will be, right? So you're going to end up with a money shortage at some point in time. How does the rebuilding process look to you over the next year? I think that one way that people can successfully rebuild first is to tap into all of those resources that we just alluded to. Um, At the beginning of the crisis, so much emphasis was put on the $1,200 stimulus checks that folks who earn up to $75,000 could receive or $2,400 for couples who earn up to $150,000. But again, that was a one-time uh, payout, those, those economic impact payments. And so part of the rebuilding is about getting the resources, the cash resources that can help you over a sustained period of time. So you mentioned unemployment and yes, the extra $600 per week at the federal level that's being paid out on top of um, people's state, weekly state unemployment benefit is helpful through July uh, 31st, 2020. But as a whole, the 26 weeks of unemployment um, on average that people can get plus that 13 weeks extra that uh, Congress approved in the CARES Act means that overall, people can get up to 39 weeks worth of unemployment. So I would still encourage those who have been recently furloughed or laid off, et cetera, to pursue unemployment because it can be a source to help you in the rebuilding effort and to sustain your family. And then there's other things too. If you've been sick or if you've been a caretaker to someone who's been sick with COVID-19, then you can qualify for sick leave benefits or family uh, medical leave benefits. It's not as much as we'd like for for people who are uh, in dire needs, but some of those benefits range from 500 up to $511 per day to, to replace 
uh, 100% of your income or $200 a day on the other side for the family medical leave benefits to replace two-thirds of your income over as long as a 10-week period. So know what you actually qualify for and do tap into those um, resources and benefits. And then even if you're not eligible for any type of government assistance or ongoing aid, part of the rebuilding is making better choices. And so we know that a lot of people were living paycheck to paycheck, were struggling financially, and as I referenced earlier, did not have adequate savings even prior to the coronavirus pandemic. So as a nation, we really have to redouble our efforts to um, get smart about how we're choosing to allocate whatever resources we do have. And one of the things that I think the pandemic has shown a lot of Americans is what we can do without. People could not go out and you know eat out every other day at restaurants. They couldn't go shopping. They couldn't go to you know get manicures or whatever. And so a lot of those things that people purchased, bought, or did just by way of habit, those had to necessarily fall by the wayside. And so I'm hoping that some people will re-tinker that B word, the budget, <laughs> the household budget, and will look and say, you know what? I actually went for two months without this. Maybe I can do this now that we're kind of opening back up again. Maybe I can only do it once a month, or maybe I don't need it at all because ultimately it's those good fiscal habits that are going to put people in good stead going forward. You know, that's such a great point. I have long talked about deferred gratification as being a concept that I think everybody should be able to buy into, right? Yep, and at so many levels, unfortunately, we've not practiced delayed or deferred gratification. We've been in this sort of consumer-driven culture where it's like, I want it now. Um, in fact, I want it yesterday and I'm willing to pay um, extra. I'm willing to pay a premium for that instant gratification. And so whatever silver linings we might want to apply to this outbreak, part of that is a more minimalist lifestyle, um, more judicious spending, and hopefully making smarter financial choices. So that brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is this idea of financial readiness and people finding opportunities to really strengthen their own finances, look forward, um, move into new opportunities, being opportunistic about, I, I hate to say opportunistic about opportunities for them, but this idea that there are different things that they can do to create uh, family financial strength. Well, that's a good point, Elise, because at so many levels, people do have the opportunity to advance their family's financial standing and potentially to come out of the COVID-19 outbreak even stronger financially than they were prior. And so there's uh, plenty of ways to do that. Some folks are going to decide to take the path of entrepreneurship and we know that owning your own business is one pathway to wealth. Now, they might have been forced into it. They might have gotten a pink slip. And by necessity, perhaps they couldn't find a job. And so they decided to create a job, to create their own business or even a side hustle. Um, again, that's one way to potentially improve your financial standing. Other people who have good credit and who have adequate savings are still looking at home buying or potentially um, real estate investments. 
I'm in that boat. Um, you know, my husband and I, we own our house here in the, in the greater Houston area, and we own five uh, rental properties as well. And we're looking to make um, another uh, acquisition um, this month, as a matter of fact. Terrific. <laughs> so some people are using this as a way to expand. And even in significant ways that are tied to some of the benefits that are afforded to tens of millions of Americans in the CARES Act, people can be opportunistic. Here's a case in point. The CARES Act provided relief for the 44 million Americans who have federal student loans. And essentially, for six months, they don't have to make payments from sort of mid-March on, but certainly from April through September 30th, during those six months, if you owe federal student loan debt, you don't have to make payments on that. And the interest on those loans is 0%. And no, it won't hurt your credit if you don't um, make the payments either. So that's good news. But what if you're in a position where you have not lost your job? and your income is still fairly stable, and you honestly can afford to pay your federal student loan debt, then I would encourage you to do so. Why? Because that's going to be an opportunity to get ahead financially, because now the payment that you make, all of your payment will go towards the principal balance on your loan as opposed to going to some of the interest. And so you'll more quickly knock out that college debt. I just love that suggestion because if your payment is normally five or $600 a month, in six months, that's $3,000 that would go to repay your loan as opposed to maybe only half of that or a third of that. It's a big change. Yep, that's right. And remember, you know, for every dollar of debt that you're knocking out, every time you reduce your debt, you're also increasing your net worth. So it's a really good way for people to um, think about and to strategize around looking at their finances in a holistic way. Lena, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Uh, Lynette Kelfani-Cox is a former Wall Street Journal reporter, a best-selling book author. You should definitely check out her books. And she is an entrepreneur. Not only does she own rental properties, which we're going to have to talk about some other time, but she owns AskTheMoneyCoach.com and Money Coach University. Lynette, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that does it for this week's Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Please visit the Equifax COVID and Credit Financial Resource Center at Equifax.com. And remember, if you sign up for a My Equifax account, you can get six free copies of your Equifax credit report each year. We'll be back soon with another Equifax Credit Talks podcast. I'm Elise Blink. Thanks for listening.